Uh, today's scripture reading comes from Revelations chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. You can also follow along on page 8 of the bulletin. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Today we're finishing um, this brief series on the book of Revelation, specifically Jesus' letters to the last three churches he wrote to Sardis in Philadelphia and here at Laodicea. <clears throat> and you need to know that in six of the seven letters that uh, Jesus writes to these churches, he says something good and then he offers some critique. Uh, he affirms them and then he admonishes them. But this last one, this is the only letter where Jesus offers no affirmation. In fact, he's very, very harsh. So we need to pay attention because he's writing to us. He's talking to us. And uh, we need to ask ourselves, in what way is he talking to me? In what way is he talking to us as a body? And he's addressing three things. He's talking about our overt, symptom, our overt dysfunctions, our covert condition, and then our only solution. Uh, what's overt, what's covert, and then what's the solution? First, we're going to look at what's overt. Verse 15, Jesus says, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. He's talking about what he sees. He's talking about what is overt. He says, I know your deeds. In verse 16, he says, you are lukewarm. Spiritually, you are lukewarm. What does that mean? Well, here's a clue. In verse 19, he says, be earnest and repent. In other words, what he's saying is, he's saying, you are lukewarm, so be earnest. To be earnest, then, is to be the opposite of lukewarm. Well, what is that? In the Greek, it's the word zeluo, which is where you get the word zealous, where you get the word zeal. What that means is this. A lukewarm Christian is somebody who's lost his zeal for God. Someone who stopped focusing his love intensely on his relationship with God. At one point in your life, there was this intensity, because you've bound your love to your relationship with Jesus, because you've bound your joy to your relationship with Jesus, and that's resulted in a tremendous amount of thought and emotion and service and energy. It's all focused and attributed to your relationship with God. To have zeal, then, is to say that God's mission, God's purpose, his agenda 
If that grows, then I grow. If that prospers, then I prosper. If you've ever been to a Broadway show, if you've ever watched The Phantom of the Opera, you remember Carlotta? Carlotta is the lead. She's this operatic lead and, and, and of the theater, but there's the Phantom. And the Phantom, he's not in love with Carlotta. He's in love with this unknown, young, kind of uh, down at the bottom, Christine Daae. And he's this musical genius. He's a prodigy. And so everything he does from that point on is for her. He secretly cha- trains her while she's sleeping. And he endows on her his gifting. He writes plays for her. He wants her to outdo Carlotta. He haunts the theater and turns the entire attention of the theater and all its work around Christine Daae. All for her. Her success is his success. Her joy becomes his joy. And so he pours out his energy. He pours out his heart. It's zeal. He's bound by his love to Christine Daae, and so she must advance. Because if she advances, then he advances. Well, here's what Jesus is saying. The issue is not that you don't believe. It's very likely that the people in Laodicea, that the church, they believed. But he says, I know your deeds. In other words, I see you. I know you're serving. But somehow that focus that you once had, that love, that passion, that zeal, that once you, supreme, you once supremely had for me, you want supremely had for our relationship, it's been placed on something else. And so that the thought and the emotion, the service, the energy, your investment, your time, your resources, it's gone. It's deflated. You have a passionless faith, a joyless faith that lacks intimacy with me, and so because it lacks intimacy with, with me, there's a lack of wonder, there's a lack of amazement, Jesus has been placed on the periphery of your life, and so that zeal is now gone. And he's saying this. He says, my life is bound to you so that your joy is my joy. But my joy, at some point in time, stopped being your joy. And so now it's rendered you ineffective. And so he says, you're neither hot or cold. I wish you. You were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Why does he say, I'd rather you be hot or cold? Different scholars say different things about this. He could be saying, one could be saying, or Jesus could be saying that I'd rather you be zealous or not believe at all. That's one way you would interpret it. But another way of looking at it is, it's like this. Near Laodicea, there were different types of springs, There were hot springs that flowed, and they were medicinal. They were healing. And there were cold springs that flowed, and they gave life. I mean, what does cold water do? I mean, it refreshes your soul. So both were very useful. Both were very effective. But Laodicea was cursed with lukewarm water. They didn't have readily available water. So you had to pipe water into the city, and that water, as it was piped in, was warm. It was lukewarm. Imagine, you know, you're playing basketball. For those of you who like basketball, football, I don't know. You're playing basketball, and you're, and you're, and you're like playing hard out in the sun, and, and you're thirsty, and your, your throat is parched, and someone hands you a can of soda, and you put it in, you, you drink, you're about to chug it down, and it's warm. It's been sitting in someone's car for days, He says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It's not effective. It doesn't actually quench my thirst. It actually makes me thirstier, right? Well, regardless of which way you interpret it, right, hot or cold, 
the people there definitely understood because he's saying the same thing. He's saying, you have that kind of faith. It is lukewarm. Your relationship with me, your relationship with Jesus is not shaping you. Something else is now shaping you. Something else is now being piped into you in a sense. And you're there. You're there out in the world. You're there. You're present in the world. In your offices, you're there. In your neighborhoods, you're there. But you are ineffective. You're not healing there's nothing you're bringing to the table. You've kind of kept your faith. You're just underground. And so it's not healing anybody. It's not refreshing anybody. It's not bringing anyone new life. You act like somebody here, like somebody who's talking Christian. You act like somebody who's been shaped by Jesus. I know your deeds, he says, but your thoughts, I know too. Your key decisions, your investments, where you place your time, where you place your resources, where you're focusing your life, it's not driven by Jesus. It's not driven by your love for Jesus. And so you're ineffective. Friends, the biggest threat to your spiritual maturity, the biggest threat to the spiritual maturity of the church is lukewarmness. A lukewarm person is way more, look, I've been pastoring here for over a decade. And it's the first and only church that I've stayed in as a lead pastor. And it's going to be the only church, I hope, that I stay as a lead pastor. And, and after being here for over a decade, I found that it's way more difficult to address lukewarm Christians, lukewarm believers in the church than a non-believer. Look, as a pastor, I can tell you, a non-believer, once they get it, it's like they bring the life to the community. A, uh, a non-believer, once they get it, there's almost like an explosion. They get really hot, and they're very refreshing, and there's fruit, and it's just life, and it's, it's, it's amazing. But a lukewarm person is very different. They're very difficult because on one level, they get it. On one level, they see it. But there's just so many barriers to real faith, and that's what's overt. He says, that's you. He's talking to the whole of the church. He says, that's you. And it's scary because Jesus doesn't say, like, well, I mean, it would be horrible if he said, like, forget you. I'm moving on to somebody else. That's not what he says. What he says, but what he does say is, verse 16, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You know what he's saying? Remember, this isn't like cuddly Jesus in those portraits that you see in, like, office complexes and stuff like that back in the day. This is the Jesus of chapter 1 in Revelation. This is the end of all time, and he's the almighty king, the creator of the universe, and he walks in fire, and he's blazing, and his eyes are blazing, and he's consuming, and he says, I see you through those eyes. And when I look at you, it makes me sick. My stomach, I'm just getting nauseous. I'm about to throw up. When Jesus looks at Christians, people who say they're Christians, who've lost their zeal, who've lost their passion and their joy because something else has captivated their attention, he says, you're making my stomach turn. It's very personal. It's like a gut reaction literally to us because, because the issue is more than just an overt thing. It's covert. Overtly, they're serving. Overtly, they're worshiping. He's writing to the church. He says, you're present. You're here. He says, but you make me sick. What's the covert condition? You need to know a little bit about Laodicea. Three things. One, it was a pharmaceutical center. In a sense, it was a pharmaceutical capital, so to speak, um, in the Roman Empire. It specialized in a particular salve for your eyes. It was medicinal, and it helped to heal your eyes. 
Secondly, uh, it was a textile center. And so it was known for a specific type of wool that when you made it into clothing, it helped the clothes to shimmer a little bit. It looked very nice. And so because of the wool, they built a trade around it. There were tailors and designers. And so you had really nice clothing coming out of the city. It became the fashion capital in a sense of the Roman Empire. And so think about it. You've got the pharmaceutical capital and the fashion capital, right? Money is just pouring into the city. And so it became a banking center, a financial center. A very, very wealthy city. So wealthy that at one time, the city was leveled by an earthquake. And, I mean, today, I mean, we just witnessed and heard about a tragedy around the world, right, in Morocco. I mean, earthquakes are just rattling uh, places around the world. Today, what happens is when there's an earthquake, uh, they would request funds from the central treasury. We do that here. President will come and visit, take a look at what's going on, and request funds to be released for that city. And they did that in ancient times as well. But Laodicea was so wealthy that apparently they never even asked for help. They never asked for any help. They rebuilt the city with their own funds, all by themselves. So when Jesus says in verse 17, you say I am rich. You say I've acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. He's literally, they understand what he's saying. But then he says, but you don't realize you are wretched and pitiful. You are wretched and pitiful because you're wealthy. Not the wealth in itself being sinful, but what it does to your heart, you're saying, I don't need anything. I don't need any help. That makes you even more wretched. That makes you even more pitiful. He says, you are poor. You are blind. Why? They made an eye salve. You are naked. Why? Because it was a fashion capital. You see that? He's talking specifically to you. He's saying, you think you're rich. Oh, you've got money and you're a banking center and all this industry, the pharmaceutical capital and the textile capital of the empire. And because of that, you think you're wise and you think you're shrewd and you think you're healthy and you're well-dressed. And people look to you and they say, well, that, that's a cosmopolitan person. So you think you're secure and you're safe and you've built up your life and it's, and it's made you very confident. Money has this way of making you confident. Money has a way of deceiving us to think that you don't need any help. The more you have, the more confident you can be. That's a very weak person. That's not a strong person. That's a person with a very fragile ego, not a person with a truly confident ego. That's, that's the real problem. And that's what makes you wretched. That's what makes you pitiful. It's ultimate poverty. He's saying you are bankrupt. You are blind. You are naked. What does it mean to be poor? Throughout the Bible, it's a metaphor for helplessness. If you've ever experienced any kind of poverty in your life, you don't have the resources to stay alive. You're just battling for survival every day. You don't have the resources to help yourself, and you're losing that battle, and you can't improve your life condition. What does it mean to be blind? It's an idiom in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, it means that you're not self-aware. Uh, John chapter 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then in John chapter 9, he's talking to the Pharisees because they're spiritually blind. Light and darkness, sight and blindness, they're almost synonymous in scripture. It's an idiom for not being self-aware. You can't see the spiritual dangers that are around you because you're not aware that you are a helpless person. You see that? And you're insufficient. When you're blind, you're insufficient. You can't see. You're stumbling around. Apart from God's Holy Spirit, we are like that. That's what he's saying. What does it mean to be naked? It's an idiom in the Bible. It's an idiom for shame. If you go all the way back to the first book of the Old Testament, in, the, in Genesis, you have Adam and Eve. When they chose to distrust God, and they chose to disobey God, to rebel against God and his command, to, they took this fruit that God told them not to eat from. What happened? Immediately, they realized they were naked. They experienced shame. 
And what do they do? They try to cover themselves. So Jesus is saying, yes, I get it. You're wealthy. You're healthy. You look nice. That's just what's on the outside, but on the inside, before me, I see you. You are bankrupt and blind and naked. You are helpless. You are insufficient. You are unaware of yourself. You are not self-aware, and, and you're unaware of the dangers that are around you. You can't see. You're blind, and you're living out of shame. You're a sinner, and he says, I see you. I know your deeds, and you think your intelligence is enough. You think you're wealthy enough to shield yourself from disaster because that's how you've lived. You bought your way out of everything. So you think you're wealthy enough to shield yourself from disaster, but there's no amount of wealth, no amount of medication, or, or your pedigree that you're using to cover over, to build yourself, and to cover over that shame. There's no amount of pedigree that you can amass and acquire in your life. There's no amount of wealth you can amass and acquire in your life to buy yourself out of the ultimate disaster that sin and its grip has on your life. We need Jesus. You think because you have some wealth, you finally tell yourself, man, I've arrived. I don't need anyone's help anymore. We see over and over in the Bible, the wealthy, the intelligent, the successful, even the religious people, there are people who've grown up in the church and they still don't get it. You see, good people, even those people, they have the greatest difficulty confessing their sin, needing Jesus. Oh, it's easy to go on the offensive and say, what are you about? What is this church about? It's easy to talk big. This is Jesus in chapter one of the book of Revelation. This is the real Jesus. Put the guard down, guys. Put it away. Because it's those people that have the most difficult time admitting that they don't get the gospel. They have the most difficult time lowering themselves. The most difficult time submitting themselves. Because over the years, as you've amassed wealth, as you've grown in promotions and bonuses, and if you climbed up that ladder and you feel like you arrived, people are starting to look to you. Everyone is starting to look to you. Because of your wealth, because of your intelligence, because of your, your success. All over the Bible, there's this link between being wealthy and intelligent and successful and spiritual lukewarmness and spiritual poverty and spiritual blindness and spiritual nakedness. Look, Jesus, he's writing to us. He's writing to the church. He's saying we are the most prone to this. Why? Because when you're wealthy, when you're educated, when you're successful, on one hand, you are, and you're in the church, you kind of know what to say. You kind of almost been trained to say, like, I'm a sinner, saved by grace, praise God. You know, sure. Somebody says something, oh, this happened to me. I got a praise to share. It's easy to say that. But oftentimes, that need for God's grace, which is characteristic of the authentic believer throughout the Bible, it doesn't captivate you. How do you know that? Because it doesn't make you desperate. It doesn't make you desperate for Jesus. You've lost your zeal. But the thing is, we are desperate. It's just that something else has gotten you, and you're desperate for that thing. And Jesus says, when I see that, I mean, it's pathetic. It's sad. 
it makes my stomach turn. It makes me sick that you're not moved by the gospel. You prayed some Mickey Mouse prayer when you were like in third grade and you think you get it now. And he says, it makes me sick because you've lost that sense of wonder that you had back then. Theologically, I mean, principally, you would say, well, I'm a, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe I'm saved by the grace of God. But functionally, look, every time you feel slighted by that one person in community group, every single time that somebody else moves up the ladder when you felt you deserved that position, Every time that, that somebody else gets the credit, even in the church, when you felt like you deserve the credit, every time that somebody else gets the promotion or the bonus, every time somebody else gets that guy or that girl or that family or that home or that neighborhood, that school, that's where your focus is. That's where you place your energy. That's where it goes. You're zealous for something else. And the reality of the grace of God hasn't shaped you, hasn't changed you, hasn't transformed you. And so there's this jealousy where there should be joy. There's this pride, you see? That shallow, hollow, soulful emptiness is what captivates you and owns you. Why does the gospel not, why does the gospel not shape us? It's because something else has captivated our souls. You see, we were created to worship. Nobody doesn't worship, you know, nothing. We're all worshiping something. You see? We all need something that defines our sense of worth. When you're focused intensely on something apart from God, that thing is defining your sense of worth. That's why that word, worship, comes from that old English word, worthship. That thing that I, I ascribe all honor and glory and power and strength is my sense, it defines my sense of worth. Your wealth has you believing that you arrived, that you've got enough, you're no longer needy. So as long as you've got wealth, and oh, you need more and more and more, you can rest on your laurels. You're ineffective. It's like you're asleep in the church, in the community, in the word. It's not that you don't read the word, but when you, it's ineffective in your life. It's, it, it's not that you don't pray. Your prayers are just ineffective prayers. Some of y'all, right here, right now, you're hearing me, and your heart is distant. The world's going to tell you, be smart. Push hard to be athletic. It's the good-looking people. That's who gets ahead. It's very difficult. It's almost impossible, save for the Holy Spirit working in your life. It is impossible to overcome that to get over yourself. We, we're Laodicea. You ever read places in the Bible where you're like, how could this person be so blind? You ever read places in the Bible like that? Have you ever opened up your Bible and read the Bible? Uh, you know, the Old Testament, Samson. I mean, you're almost screaming at the text. How could you be so blind? How could Jephthah, as a leader of God's people, be so driven by society's beliefs and society's values that he would offer his own daughter as a human sacrifice. Because the culture back then, that's what they did. They offered their children as sacrifices. How could the Pharisees, we look at the Pharisees, we mock the Pharisees. You know, but the thing is, if you took a Pharisee, brought him into modern times, they were educated Great neighbors, great citizens, worked really hard. They were wealthy, had families, wonderful neighborhoods. That's you! How could the Pharisees be so blind, we say? 
They act so self-sufficient, so self-reliant, and they're so shameless about it. We are lukewarm. What are the poor countries surrounding the United States? I mean, we live in a pretty blessed context. We have tremendous freedoms, tremendous resources. You know what poor countries surrounding us say who have far less freedoms, far less resources? You know what they say about us? You know what they say about the church? They say the same exact thing. How could they, how could we be so blind and so self-sufficient and so self-reliant and so shameless about that? That's what they say. They say that our status and our wealth that safety that we so crave, that comfort that we're pushing for, we're soft because of it. We're weak because of it. We've forgotten God. Jesus, it's been just pushed to the periphery more and more out of our lives. Today, I mean, they look at us and they say, we lack prayer, we lack worship, we lack generosity, we lack courage. And they see how selfish we are and self-indulgent we are and self-gratifying we are. And they see how stingy and yet materialistic we are. They see how, how cowardly we are. Do you know that today more missionaries are being sent to the United States than ever before, and you know who they're targeting? They're targeting the wealthy and the educated. Because we have, we have adapted so much to society's values. We're Laodicea. We're lukewarm. We're ineffective. And Jesus says, you're powerless. So you've got the overt dysfunctions and dichotomies. And you've got the covert condition. What's the solution? Verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you. It's another way of saying, look, here's the prescription. And basically, he says a few things. One, he says, I want you to grasp the truth that my salvation comes by sheer grace. Verse 18, what's his counsel? I want you to buy from me. I want you to get from me. I want you to acquire from me gold refined in the fire. Basically, you know what gold is? When Jesus was born, there were three wise men who came and they brought him gifts. One of them was gold. What does gold represent? You're a king. Royalty. Gold represents status. The status of a king. He says, I want you to get white clothes for me. You know what white represents? It's an idiom. It means you're clean. It means you're righteous. You're approved and acceptable by God. So your shame has been covered over. White as snow, white as snow. All my sins are like red, scarlet, bloody. But you render me white as snow. You see? It covers over our nakedness. He says, I want you to come to me. I don't want you to get the salve for your eyes. Why? Because we're blind. So you can get spiritual sight. He said, you can only get it from me. Why? Because before, you just bought your way out of everything. You bought your way out of every trouble, out of every disaster. You worked your way out of everything. But here, Jesus says, no, you can't do it here. You can't even afford it. You would go bankrupt trying, and you still won't have enough. You will die trying to pay this off. 
Ever since Adam and Eve, in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, when they chose to reject God and disobey God, to rebel against God, when he chose to replace God with their other desires, we've been needing this. You see? After Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, Genesis chapter 3, it says, then the eyes of both of them opened. They thought they could see. But then they realized they were naked. That's what they saw. And so what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to make a covering, this insufficient covering. Fig leaves. There's nobody in this room that's going to say fig leaves are sufficient. Yeah, you think so? Go to an Eagles game wearing fig leaves, right? It's insufficient. It's not enough. It just barely is going to get you by, and it's not really going to get you by, right? They realized they were naked. It's an idiom. Why? It means shame. There was shame. And ever since then, their eyes were open. But it's an ironic phrase because even though their eyes were open, they saw their shame so they were blind. And what did they do? Because now they've been driven out of the garden. They've lost their relationship with God. They've rejected God. God didn't walk away from them. They walked away from the Father. And so what happened is as a result, they, ever since then, they've been looking everywhere apart from God to cover over that shame. Friends, we do that all the time, right? We cover over our shame. We feel the sense of insecurity and inadequacy. But when you're in the office, man, you boy, you are, you are, the, you are the it person, aren't you? Boy, when you're serving as that medical professional, wherever it is that you're serving, in school, people look to you. They look to you as the leader, and you love that. You know why? Because it covers over your sense of inadequacy, that deep sense of shame. Deep inside, we're still looking to cover over our shame with our intelligence and our success, our competencies and our skills. You see? It's why even in the church, we just act the part. Because it'll get you by. It covers over that deep inadequacy, that deep sense of like, I'm just faking it, man. Deep inside, your soul is crumbling. But we're just going to fake it because you don't want to look like your soul is crumbling. Deep inside, we know we need healing. Deep inside, we know we're just spiritual, we're just empty. We're poor. We need a covering, by the way. It's why we overwork. It's why we care so much about how we look. It's why we just need success in our lives, why we need to build wealth. It's also why we get so defensive, even at the slightest of slights, we get so defensive and so anxious and so angry and so jealous because we want somebody to say, how did you get in? How did you get back in the garden? How did you make it? Oh, we want that. We want people to say, man, he is worthy. We want people to say, she is beautiful. We want people to say, yeah, man, I wish I could be like that person. That person is acceptable. That person is approvable. It's another word for righteous. That's what righteousness means, you know that? And we will pay a huge price for that. We pay with, I mean, our, our satisfaction and joy. We are proud and angry and depressed, and we are exhausted people. We are an exhausted generation. Why? Because like Laodicea, we think that work, we think that our wealth can buy our way out. It's not a cultural thing. You weren't just brought up this way. It's not a social thing. Everybody else is like this. It's not even a philosophical thing in the end. It's a cosmic thing. What I mean by that is what you really want, the reason why we're so desperate for these things is because we want the approval of God in the end. We want the creator of the universe to say, yes, you made it. 
Yes, you're back in. I will gladly let you back in. You're beautiful. Yes, you're, you're, why wouldn't I want you? You're so lovable. You finally, you've built yourself up. How could I reject you? That's what we want. What we really want, we're desperate for, we want his status. We want status. We want, we want to be approved. We want the white clothes. We want the righteousness. We want healing. We want sight. We want insight into our lives. We want wisdom. And it's killing us because we want it all apart from God. We want the thrill and the blessing of, and the benefits of a relationship Jesus, with Jesus without Jesus. What do you pray about every day? What did you pray about last night? What did you pray for last night? To be more like Jesus? How many of you used the word holiness in your prayers last night? That you would experience God's presence in your life in a way that just captivates everything in your life, your wealth, your children, your families? That you would advance Jesus' mission with boldness? That you would advance Jesus' agenda, his church with boldness? Nah. You know what you pray for? You pr- we settle for so m- Guys, we settle for so much less. We want things. We want gold. Fool's gold. You know what that makes you? Makes you a fool. We are lukewarm. And that is the biggest barrier to experiencing the love of Jesus. It is the biggest barrier to loving Jesus. There are people here, I mean, you are zealous for fool's gold. And you're going to be working and working and working. And you are exhausted because of it. There are people here, you want white clothes. You're just battling guilt in your life. Maybe it's been for a long time. You're just battling a sense of guilt, like Macbeth. You ever read Macbeth? Out damn spot, out you. Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia cannot sweeten this little hand. You can't shake that guilt. And so you're just working and working and working and working. There are people here, you've suffered some trauma in your life. Some, you've gone through some suffering. Where do you go for healing? And so you're just working and working and working towards it. Jesus says, anything apart from me, you're still a pauper when you were a prince. You could be a prince. You're still naked when you could wear fine white linens. You're still poor. You're still blind when you could see. And no matter what you acquire, it'll never last. It'll never satisfy you. It'll never clean you. It'll never heal you. Only what I can give you by sheer grace, that's the only thing that you'll never be able to lose. You give it away and you'll get more of it. Some of you are saying, well, what you're then saying must be, okay, I think what the pastor is saying is be a good person, get your doctrine right, take that systematic theology overview class, you know, serve harder, serve harder, I gotta give more, then I'll be okay, right? Are you listening to me? We are in bad shape. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Like, we're in bad shape. And we don't even realize how helpless we are. We don't even realize how much in need we are. We are bankrupt, my friends. We are naked and blind. We are dead. And we think our good works are going to be recognized? You think your good works serving in the church is going to soften your heart? Jesus is saying, you can only come to, you got to come to me. Don't come to me for things. Come to me for me. You can only get it from me by sheer grace. Just come to me. I'm going to give it to you. I'm offering it to you. When he says, I'll come, like buy it, acquire it, he's not saying like, yeah, I need your money. What he's saying is, I've already earned it for you. I want you to access it. Come to the counter. 
Come to buy. I'm going to give it to you. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm saved. So I'm good, right? But are you rich in your relationship with Jesus? Are you zealous for your relationship with Jesus? Are you jealous? You know that word zealous is synonymous actually with the word jealous. Do you get angry in your heart that somebody else is trying to take God's place and so you get jealous for your relationship with Jesus and you push that thing to the periphery and bring God more and more into the center? Are you bathing in in Christ's, just, just the richness and mercy of Jesus? Are you bathing in the richness of Jesus' love? Are you clothed in the tenderness of his righteousness and not your own self-righteousness? Are you clothed in the warmth of his righteousness and not your works? Not your accomplishments? Not your wealth or your 401k? Are you in wonder at the beauty of the wisdom of Jesus in a way that it just soulfully heals you and brings you to rest, Jesus says you can only get that from me. Of course, there is another way that God can soften us sometimes out of our lukewarmness. In verse 18, Jesus says, I want you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. And then in verse 19, he says, well, those I love, I rebuke and discipline. What's gold refined in the fire? Because think about what he's saying. Buy from, get from me this gold that's refined in the fire By the way, if I love you, I'm going to rebuke you and discipline you. What is that gold refined in the fire? You know what gold, you know how you acquire gold? You got to mine it. It's rock. It's hard. It's it's not very valuable looking. You take out this chunk. How do you get the actual gold out of that? Right? You got to put it through the fire. Suffering. You got to put it through the crucible. Some of us, were so rock hard. It's going to take that. Maybe it will. Maybe we've got to lose some things. Maybe those things are going to get taken away from us. Maybe. You see? Really difficult times. Why? Because suffering, it does something. It makes you desperate. Real suffering. And one of the things it does is it shapes us to be more compassionate, to be wiser, to be softer, Suffering is the crucible. It's the refiner's fire. The great, late Tim Keller, he used to say, sometimes you don't realize that Jesus is all you need until you realize that Jesus is all you have. Jesus says, on one hand, you're lukewarm, and that disgusts me. So you need to notice this. But then on the other hand, he says, if I love you, I'm going to rebuke you and I'm going to discipline you. So you're lukewarm, and that makes my stomach turn, but I haven't left you. I haven't rejected you. I haven't abandoned you. I'm right here. I haven't left you. I love you. Verse 20, here I am. I stand at your door, and I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in. I'm going to eat with him and he with me. You know what he's talking about? He's saying, I want to be intimate with you. You need to know, to enter a house in those days, to enter a house for a meal. Meals were very difficult to prepare in those ancient times. Think about it. There was no gas. There was no electricity. There was no refrigerators. There was no ice. Nothing to cool down your food, right? Water wasn't even easy to get. You see that? 
And so in ancient times, to invite somebody over your home for a meal, to let them in through your door at probably the most valuable time of your day, which is after work when the sun's not gone down yet, right? Those last waking hours, because there's no electricity. You, once the lights go out, you're, you're done. You got to go to sleep, you see? And so to let somebody into your house to spend that valuable, precious time with that person, to eat a meal that you prepared after work with no resources around, you didn't have refrigerators, your meal was walking around. You understand? But to do that, you would only let somebody in like that if they meant something to you. You see that? He's saying, I want to be that intimate with you to the point where you just open the door for me. You see? Remember, he's talking to the people of the church. This isn't necessarily him saying, I want you to open the door, let me in, and once I come in, then you're going to be saved. I mean, it could mean that to some degree, but what he's really saying is much deeper than that. He's saying, I want to be in with you. I want us to delight in each other. I want to share intimate fellowship with you. Intimate. See, when you eat a meal and you eat together, what happens? You start to talk. What do you talk about? Well, very good meal. I love the wine that's being poured here. You don't just eat like that and go home. You're going to talk about what you value, what you love. You're going to seek counsel. Jesus is saying, I want that kind of relationship with you. Look, look when you're with your boss, one-on-one, -on -one, it's time to talk about your, your compensation package for the next year. And he says, look, I, I'm not here to really talk about that. I want you to know that I love you and I embrace you and I want you to be in with me. They're gonna, you're going to be like, what? I don't want that. And yet that's how we treat Jesus in our lives. To most of us, Jesus is just a glorified business partner, like a one-way business partner. Jesus, I want this, I want that. I need this to go well, I need this to happen. Prayer is just like a business meeting, a one-on-one. -on -one. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not here for that. Why would I do business with you? You're poor. <laughs> You're blind. You're naked. He's saying, I want to know you, and I want you to know me. I want us to stop looking at the clock. And I just want to be able to pour my heart out to you intimately over this meal. I want you to know how much you're loved. And I don't, need, I don't even need an invitation. I'm already at your door. Like, just open up and let me in. Like, I'm waiting. I'm knocking. Because I'm here. I'm like ready to go. Like, wine, ready to go. I'm ready to come in. And to give you life. Draw life from me. In verse 21, Jesus says, To him who overcomes, I give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and now sit with the Father on his throne. You see that? That's what he says. What does that mean? He's saying, Now I rule the world, I rule the universe. When you sit down, you see the high priest in the ancient times never sat down because the work was never finished. What he's saying is the work is done. I've already earned it for you, so now we get to sit together and rule. It's an amazing thing. He's inviting us to rule with him. Why would he do that? And his answer would be, why would I do any of this? To honor the Father and because of just my deep love for you. I've earned that right to rule with you. You are a royal priesthood. 
I came for you. I died for you so I could be with you forever. And I want you to have everything that I've earned. How? On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is I've lost the Father. I've lost the love of the Father. Another way of saying that is he's spit me out. The Laodiceans, they say, well, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. But Jesus on the cross, he's saying, I am poor. I'm utterly bankrupt. I'm desperate for the Father. My God, my God. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you know he was stripped naked on the cross? Why? Nakedness is an idiom for what? Shame. He was covered in shame. He was stripped naked. People were watching him and mocking him. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might have the approval of God. We might have the embrace and the love and the acceptance of God. So Jesus' body is covered in blood. Why? He was covered in shame. Why? So we will be covered in white. We will be arrayed with fine linen, arrayed with his righteousness. Jesus Christ gave up his righteousness so that we would have his righteousness. Jesus Christ, his body was broken, blood just all over his body, just covered in blood. Why? White as snow. White as snow. Though my sins be like red, crimson, scarlet, you've made them white as snow. Do you know, before they crucified Jesus, they put a blindfold on him, oh, and they just beat his face. And they mocked him and they said, prophesy, tell us who hit you. And while he was on the cross, darkness covered the entire land. Complete darkness. So nobody could see. He was blinded. Isaiah 53, why? So that we could be healed. And so Jesus suffered the cosmic poverty so that we would be wealthy and rich in him. He suffered the cosmic nakedness, exposed and vulnerable to the wrath of God so we would be clothed in him. He suffered the cosmic blindness so that we could be healed in him. And it was his joy to do this. It was his joy, you see. The author of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know what that means? He was zealous for you. His love for you was so intense, it made him bear everything on the cross. And so on the cross, the wrath of God is pouring out on him for our sins as a penalty for our sins. And he's just saying, more, more, just give it to me, all of it. He doesn't want a single drop of that wrath left. Why? He would be covered in blood so that you'd be covered in God's love. So you wouldn't have to suffer a single ounce of the one wrath, the one anger, the one bitterness that could actually ruin you for all eternity. And he said, no, I'll take it. I'll take it. He was zealous for it. And when it was all done, he said, it's finished. It's complete. It's over. The debt is paid. I paid the price for your desperation. I earned it all for you. So to look at your life and say, Jesus, not now. I'm doing enough. And then go enjoy intimate friendships and just, uh, just social enjoyment with your family, but not with Jesus. 
To look at your career and say, Jesus, not now. I need to work here. You see, well, this is the reason why I am this way at work. And then mute the work of Jesus. To look at your bank account and say, Jesus, not now. I mean, I'm giving enough. And I need more. And then go find dining with other people, but not with Jesus. To look at your body. I mean, we just absolutely hate our bodies today. And, and then forget Jesus' broken body for us and say, Jesus, not now. I need a makeover. How do you reconcile that? You can't. We're just mailing it in when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. But then we're zealous for everything else. Who gave you your opportunities? Who gave you your job? Who gave you your education? Who gave you your families? Who gave you those homes? Who gave you your health? You see why it's nauseating? Good water is fresh. I mean, it gives you life. It's refreshing. It's renewing. It's healing. It's soothing. It's comforting. It's energizing. It's empowering. Friends, let's burn hot or cold. You make the call. But we got to give up our lukewarmness now. we got to give up now. So to Sardis, he says, you're dead, but then he dies for us. To Philadelphia, he says, you got to endure, but then he endured for us. To Laodicea, he said, man, run hot and cold. And then he became our living water. Be earnest and repent. Let's pray.